If you thought you knew why the keto diet was good for you, you've got another thought coming. You got to listen to this podcast because everything you thought about ketogenic diet and brain health and better health is all wrong. And I'll prove it to you shortly. This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. The neurohacking show where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at roscoeswetsuitneuro.com. Now here's your host, Toby Passman. All right. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Stephen Gundry. Dr. Gundry is one of the world's top cardiothoracic surgeons and a pioneer in nutrition, as well as medical director at the International Heart and Lung Institute Center for Restorative Medicine. He has spent the last two decades studying the microbiome and now helps patients use diet and nutrition as a key form of treatment. He is author of many New York Times bestselling books, including The Plant Paradox and The Plant Paradox Cookbook, along with the longevity paradox and the energy paradox. And he'll be releasing his new book, Unlocking the Keto Code on March 8th of 2022. So Dr. Gundry, super excited to have you on the show today. Toby, glad to be here and hope you're doing well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, my first introduction to your work, you know, I think I heard you on an episode of Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey a few years ago, and that got me uh, into reading The Plant Paradox, which really blew my mind, as I'm sure it, it blew a lot of people's minds, because it's, <laughs> you know, it was, it wasn't like I was, you know, I was, I was already kind of eating what I thought was pretty healthy food. I wasn't, I wasn't having Cheetos and ice cream for every meal. You know, I was, I thought I was eating healthy, but, you know, some of the things you mentioned in the book, some of the, uh, some of these you know, so-called health foods actually have a lot of these anti-nutrients, lectins you talk a lot about in the book that you just, most people would, would never even guess that, that these foods that they think are uh, enriching their lives, enriching their health are actually detrimental. So what, how did you kind of reach that, uh, that verdict that a lot of these seemingly innocuous foods are really, were really causing a lot of harm in, in your patients? Well, I guess a lot of things came together. First of all, um, as an undergraduate at Yale back in the dark ages, I had a special major in human evolutionary biology. And I basically had to defend a thesis that said you could take a great ape, manipulate its environment and manipulate its food supply and uh, become a human being. And actually defended my thesis and got an honors and anyhow gave it to my parents and went off to become a a famous heart surgeon um oh about oh 25 years ago now uh when i was chairman of heart surgery at uh, loma linda university here in southern california i was referred a uh, patient in his his mid 40s who had inoperable coronary artery disease every Everything was clogged up in his blood vessels. You couldn't put stents. You couldn't do bypasses. And he was a big fat guy who I call Big Ed in in all my books. And he had gone around the country looking for surgeons to take him on. And and everywhere he went, everybody said, no, I'm not going to help you. And he spent about six months doing this. And when he arrived in my office, which was fairly standard, uh, I looked at the angiogram of his heart, the movie of his coronary arteries. And I said, you know, I got to agree with everybody else. I, I, I don't want to turn you down, but there's really nothing I can do for you. And he says, yeah, I get it. Everybody says that, but here's the deal. Uh, I spent six months doing this. I've been on a diet. I've lost 45 pounds. He was still 265 pounds when I met him. Uh, and I've gone to a health, health food store and I'm taking lots of supplements and, uh, you know, maybe I did something in my heart and, you know, I, I told him, well, good for you for losing weight, but that's really not going to do much in your blood vessels. And I know what you did with all those supplements. You made expensive urine, uh, which I 
firmly believed back then. And he said, well, come on, why don't we get a new angiogram? Maybe I did something. So we did. And in six months time, this guy had cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his heart. They were gone. And I was flabbergasted. And, uh, you know, I said, hey, you know, tell me about this diet of yours and let me look at your supplements. So he starts telling me about the diet and lo and behold, the diet he's describing that he's eating was actually my thesis in college. And the supplements he was taking, I was using in the lab and in the operating room to keep hearts alive in a bucket of ice water for 24 hours doing heart transplants and uh, protecting hearts during heart cases. And I was putting these down the veins and arteries of, the, uh, of these hearts and it never occurred to me to swallow them. So long story short, my parents sent me my thesis. I put myself on my program and I lost uh, 70 pounds. And so I started teaching people uh, what to eat after I operated on them. And after about a year of doing this, not only um, did their health improve, but the, improved in ways that surprised me. Their high blood pressure went away, their diabetes went away, their arthritis went away, their brain fog went away. And I said, wow, uh, that's something. So I actually, after about a year of doing this at Loma Linda, I realized that I shouldn't operate on people and then teach them how to eat to avoid me in the future. I should teach them how to eat first, and then they probably would never need my services. Now, for a heart surgeon, that's pretty dumb uh, as a career choice, um, but I did it. So I resigned my position at, as chairman and professor at Loma Linda and set up uh, a clinic in Palm Springs. And now I have one in Santa Barbara too, and where I literally ask people, to follow a few rules of food and to take a few supplements from Costco or Trader Joe's, there wasn't an Amazon back then. And so for the last 22 years, we've been, I've been following what foods benefit people, but more importantly, what taking certain foods away from people did for them. And, and that was based in a long-winded way of asking your question. Uh, we did not eat our current diet until about 10,000 years ago when we added grains and beans uh, to our diet. And we shrunk between 10,000 years ago and 8,000 years ago, we shrunk uh, about a foot in height. And the first evidences of uh, arthritis and bone loss and diabetes began to appear in skeletons during that time. Uh, fast forward, uh, all of us uh, originally are from Europe, Asia, or Africa. And none of us encountered foods from the Americas until 500 years ago when Columbus began what's now called Colombian trade. And many of the quote, really healthy foods that we think are good for us are modern American foods, such as corn, such as quinoa, such as tomatoes, the squash family, peppers, potatoes, corn. And uh, so these are very, very new uh, in our diet. And they all have a commonality in that they contain a class of proteins called lectins that plants use to defend themselves against being eaten. And so I started taking these, these foods away from people and we could see on their blood work uh, changes, dramatic changes, their inflammation went away, their insulin resistance went away. And so that actually resulted in the plant paradox, the basically healthy foods that are killing you. <laughs> and then what's kind of like the, the mechanism in which these, these foods are wreaking havoc and causing all this inflammation in the body? Great question. This was really codified a few years ago 
by a professor who's now at Harvard by the name of Alessio Fizzano. And I've had, have had the pleasure of being on a few panels with him. And Dr. Fizzano showed that lectins and gluten happens to be a lectin as well, uh, can attach to the wall lining our gut. And the wall lining our gut has, I guess, a design flaw in that the cells lining our gut is on, are only one cell thick. And the lining of our gut spans the surface area of a tennis court, literally inside of us. And so these cells, when lectins attach to these cells and they attach to sugar molecules on the surface, they actually flip a switch and they make a compound uh, called zonulin. And there's not gonna be a test on this, I promise your listeners. Uh, zonulin attaches to another receptor and that actually breaks the bonds that hold these cells together called tight junctions. When that happens, lectins, pieces of bacteria and actual pieces of food particles go across this wall. And on the other side of the wall of our gut, 80% of all of our immune cells, all of our white blood cells are sitting there, kind of like our border patrol. And when they see all these foreign substances coming across, they actually attack the wall. Uh, they send troops to the wall, but they also, um, which causes local inflammation, but interestingly enough, they send uh, white blood cells around the body looking for these proteins, lectins, that might be loose. And it causes inflammation and causes autoimmune disease. I and others now are very convinced that leaky gut is the cause of all autoimmune diseases. And I've published papers that following my program, 94% of people resolve their markers of autoimmune diseases in, in six months to a year by removing these problems. And we can actually measure, and I've published, that you can heal leaky gut, you can resolve the markers of leaky gut by taking these particular foods out of your diet. Uh, so it's not it's not pseudoscience, it's not wishful thinking, um, leaky gut or intestinal permeability is real. And Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago that all disease begins in the gut. And I paraphrase Hippocrates to say, yes, all disease begins in the gut. And the good news is all disease can end in the gut once you fix the, the leak. And the gut, we're obviously also now seeing all of the importance of the, the gut-brain axis, all of the connections and signals that the brain sends to the gut and vice versa. So I'm curious, you know, what, what do these lectins and other uh, substances that are kind of breaking these tight junctions in the gut, what effect does it have on the brain and cognitive function? Yeah, so those are really great questions. And surprisingly, one of the, one of the clues uh, about the, the gut-brain connection uh, came that you well know, and many of your listeners know, there's a very big nerve that comes from the brain down to the gut and other organs uh, called the vagus nerve. And for years, we thought that this was the way the brain uh, talked to the gut. Well, it turns out that for every nerve fiber leading from the brain to the gut, there are actually nine nerve fibers leading from the gut to the brain. So it's actually the gut telling the brain what to do in many ways. And just as an example, uh, it's been known for some time that people who years ago used to have an ulcer operation called a vagotomy 
where we would actually cut the vagus nerve to help heal ulcers. And I remember doing that as a general surgeon. People who had had a vagotomy for ulcer disease, uh, strangely enough, had a much lower incidence of Parkinson's disease compared to people who didn't have a vagotomy. And so researchers said, well, that's interesting. I uh, wonder why that would be. And some very fascinating animal experiments showed that, among other things, lectins have the ability to climb the vagus nerve and attach to and damage uh, the movement area in the brain, the substantia nigra, which is kind of a switching box in the brain. And that lectins literally could go from the gut to the brain. We now know it's even more, I guess, complicated and exciting than that. Uh, a few years ago, a whole class of compounds that were made by the microbiome in our gut, which are called postbiotics. Uh, just as an aside, most people have heard of probiotics, friendly bacteria. And many people are beginning to realize the importance of prebiotics, uh, which are soluble fibers that gut bacteria eat. But now we know about postbiotics, which are basically what are made by probiotics when they eat prebiotics. And postbiotics actually tell the brain what to do. They tell mitochondria what to do. Uh, we know that from a Japan study that people with Parkinson's in Japan, when we look at their bacteria, their microbiome, their microbiome doesn't make hydrogen gas, which is a postbiotic signaling molecule. And people who don't have Parkinson's have a microbiome that makes hydrogen gas. Uh, the Hindenburg was full of hydrogen gas. So they did some experiments giving people hydrogen dissolved in water, and you can do this very easily. And believe it or not, their Parkinson's symptoms improved just by giving them one of these postbiotics. So that's... Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of that, that the microbiome and the products that the microbiome create could have that much influence uh, on the brain. Finally, back to leaky gut. Uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen, myself, Dr. David Pomerter of Grain Brain are now convinced that much, maybe all, of dementia is caused by the brain attempting to protect itself from particles like bacteria, like lectins coming through a leaky gut. And we, in a way, go overboard with that protection, our microglia, which are the bodyguards of the neurons of the brain and also the gut uh, literally uh, nibble away on the dendritic processes of neurons where one neuron talks to another in an effort to save the neuron's life from these aggressors. And it's no longer science fiction. I wrote about this in the, my last book, The Energy Paradox, and this is all very real, and it's only become known about since the microbiome was, was literally discovered uh, a little over 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, you mentioned in terms of uh, how, how vital the gut health is in terms of, you know, these neurodegenerative conditions. What about, you know, more, you know, psychiatric conditions, anxiety, depression, uh, things that, that people are going 
you know, to see psychiatrists for all the time, how much, how much of that do you feel like is, uh, is influenced by, you know, kind of all the stuff that you talk about lectins, all the, the tight junctions in the gut? Yeah, well, you know, uh, Dr. Daniel Amen, who uh, has become a friend of mine, who is a psychiatrist, um, who maps uh, the brain with uh, brain spectroscopy, uh, he's now uh, very convinced that we should no longer maybe even use the word mental illness, but we should instead look to gut dysbiosis and leaky gut is really the underpinnings of where what we would normally call mental illness like uh, anxiety and depression, just to name two, come from. And there are uh, primarily elegant animal studies that uh, suggest, if not prove, that this is true. And a lot of it comes from leaky gut. A lot of it comes from an absence of bacteria that can make um, neuro-soothing compounds that can make neurotransmitters like serotonin, like GABA. And we once thought that these things were actually made by uh, nerve cells in the gut. And we now know that actually most of them are being made by the gut microbiome themselves. So it's just been, you know, it's been a whole sea change of how we, you know, thought things work. And many of us now think, you know, our most important brain is in fact down in our gut and our brain up in our head is actually subservient to these hundreds and trillions of organisms that uh, are symbiotes to us. Uh, I'll give you one other really striking example that I, I mentioned in one of my first books. There's a, there's a very famous professor, Dr. Robert Sapolsky at Stanford, who um, I, I studied actually when I was studying human evolution, but he uh, is fascinated with a one-celled organism called toxoplasmosis. And many women know about toxoplasmosis. Um, cats in, in general can carry toxoplasmosis. And women, if they're pregnant, are told to avoid cats because they literally can acquire toxoplasmosis from their cats. Now, what's so bad about that? Well, toxoplasmosis has a fascinating life uh, history. And like many parasites, it has to go through an intermediate host to get where it wants to go. So it turns out that uh, cats are where toxoplasmosis wants to get to. And normally toxoplasmosis gets into rats via rats drinking infected water that has toxoplasmosis in it. And toxoplasmosis goes into the brain of the rat and it rewires literally the brain of the rat. Rats would normally be afraid of cats. And in fact, rats are so afraid of cats that if they smell cat urine, they run the other way. The toxoplasmosis, the single-celled organism, rewires the brain of cats. So they not only don't fear cats, but if they see a cat or smell cat urine, they will run to the cat. In which case, of course, the cat eats the rat and the toxoplasmosis gets to its final resting place, the cat. I got interested in this because we know that uh, big cats like tigers uh, really enjoy eating humans and humans happen to be a vector for toxoplasmosis to get into big cats. 
And Dr. Sapolsky got interested in it because the US military was very interested in infecting soldiers with toxoplasmosis so that they would run to danger. And in fact, if you look at motorcycle accidents and death from motorcycle accidents, motorcyclists have very high infect infection rates of toxoplasmosis. And there's lots of other interesting things that daredevils have a lot of infection in toxoplasmosis. So long story point, one cell organisms can completely change human behavior. And if that one can do it, I can assure you that the hundreds and trillions of one-celled organisms living in our gut have an equal ability to influence our human behavior for good or bad. Have you ever heard of audiovisual entrainment before? Audiovisual entrainment, or AVE for short, is a unique neurotechnology that implements flashes of light and pulses of tones to alter electrical and chemical activity to guide the brain into various brainwave patterns. It increases cerebral blood flow, improves neural functioning, releases parasympathetic hormones, which activate the brain's repair mechanisms, and also releases a lot of feel-good neurotransmitters, including serotonin, dopamine, and endorphins. At Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro, we design specific individualized AVE protocols based on the original brain map to help regulate your brain's electrical activity. To learn more, check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com or listen to the podcast episode recorded with Dave Seaver, an expert on audiovisual entrainment. And if there is any question, as far as you know, for a, for a neuroscience podcast or psychology podcast, why, why I would be having a cardiothoracic surgeon on, well, that, I think that answer go. lended a little bit of evidence as to why. So, um, so Dr. Gundry, your, your new book is uh, focusing on, on the keto diet. And I just wanted to kind of hear what, what inspired you to want to write a whole book about keto? Well, I've, I've had a ketogenic version of, of my diet in the plant paradox and subsequent books um, since you know, for a very long time. And it's a part of my practice. And uh, when I was writing the energy paradox, the last book and kind of focusing in on where ketones, which are short chain fatty acids that are water soluble, kind of fall into this whole scheme of making energy. Uh, I and others have always thought that uh, ketones were some sort of miraculous fuel, that they were really the perfect fuel for our brain, since this is a is a neuro podcast, and that we should actually strive to be in ketosis. And this was actually based on the original use of a ketogenic diet in the treatment of seizure disorders in children. And the, the ketogenic diet was actually coined by a doctor at the Mayo Clinic back in the 1930s. And it became the standard uh, treatment of epilepsy in children before uh, anti-seizure drugs like phenobarbital or dilantin came online. And in this diet, they found that if you fed children an 80% an 80 fat diet and a 10% carb diet and a 10% protein diet, that over 50% of them uh, would become seizure-free and the rest would have dramatically lowered seizures. Uh, nobody knew why. In fact, only recently have we discovered why this is effective. But that actually prompted researchers in the 1970s to start looking at uh, what ketones actually did. And uh, researchers uh, like Dr. Cahill and Dr. Veach 
began to believe that ketones, which are normally generated during starvation or during intense exercise, or when carbohydrates are severely restricted, uh, ketones were one way and one of the only ways of keeping the brain alive uh, during these activities. Now, normally, normally the brain likes glucose as its, uh, its fuel. And when we're starving, almost all of our other tissues can use free fatty acids as a fuel. And our mitochondria can burn free fatty acids and everybody's happy, only one problem. Free fatty acids are large molecules and they're not water soluble. And they run into the blood brain barrier and they can't get through the blood, blood brain barrier very quickly. Enter ketones. Free fatty acids can go to the liver where they are converted into short chain water soluble fatty acids called ketone bodies. The liver can't use ketones as a fuel and the liver releases ketones and ketones can then go to the brain and keep the brain alive while we're waiting for our next meal or our next kill or finding something to eat. And particularly Dr. Veach thought that this was the best survival mechanism that anybody could ever come up with, except that uh, researchers at Harvard, uh, Dr. Cahill and his colleague, Dr. Owen, in 2004 showed that in humans, only 30% of our energy needs at full ketosis could be met by ketones and that we would have to use free fatty acids or glucose as a fuel. And the brain, even at full ketosis, still can only get 60 to 70% of its needs met by ketones, and it has to have glucose. So when this was discovered, uh, most people didn't notice those discoveries. It doesn't jive with how we think about ketones, but in fact, it's true. So when I looked at that data, and, and you know, this came out of Nobel Prize winning labs, you start going, well, wait a minute. If ketones aren't this super duper great fuel that keeps your brain alive and the brain prefers ketones, what exactly are ketones doing? Well, what they're doing is they're signaling molecules and signaling molecules simplistically tell uh, organelles, tell cell membranes, tell genes, what to do, uh, whether to turn on, turn off. And in the case of ketones, ketones tell mitochondria, those energy producing organelles, to actually waste energy, to waste fuel. Now, everybody let that sink in for a second. We used to think that ketones made us incredibly efficient fat burners. And we used to think because if we were starving, we didn't have much fuel, that we would rev up our mitochondria to become incredibly fuel efficient and not waste a single drop or, or calorie because who knew where our next meal was coming from? And in, 19, in, 20, in 2000, Dr. Martin Brand wrote a seminal paper that most people have never seen called Uncoupling to Survive. And your listeners, just for fun, ought to look it up. And he said, boy, did we get this all wrong. Mitochondria, from ketones are instructed to literally become incredibly fuel inefficient to waste calories so that in the process of wasting calories, they no longer 
hurt themselves in the process of making energy. Uh, making ATB is hard work. It damages mitochondria. And many people have heard of free radicals. Many people have heard of reactive oxygen species. Long story short, uh, making energy damages mitochondria, which is not a good thing. Dr. Brand said, well, if mitochondria make less energy, they won't be damaged. And if they're not damaged, they can make it because if they die and it's the end of, of the organism. So the mitochondria are instructed by ketones to protect themselves at all costs. Now they're also instructed by ketones to make more of themselves called mitogenesis. And mitochondria are really cool because they have their own DNA. So <clears throat> cell can have lots more mitochondria without actually dividing. Finally, ketones tell mitochondria to repair themselves, to undo any damage. So Brand said, believe it or not, mitochondria waste fuel to save their lives. And he proposed that there are ways to do this by wasting fuel through uh, emergency exits in the electron transport chain in the inner membrane of mitochondria. And lo and behold, they found these emergency exits in mitochondria and they're controlled by what are called uncoupling proteins. And uncoupling just means that you no longer uh, have to couple a protein with an oxygen molecule and create ATP. You can literally waste protons and thereby protecting the mitochondria. And that's what he was getting at. And so when I started looking at the examples of other molecules that uncouple mitochondria, this vast world opened up and it actually explained what we assume are quote, healthy foods. And that's kind of what the book is all about. So long story short, you do not need to eat a high fat diet to produce ketones, number one. Number two, you don't even need ketones to get the benefit of a ketogenic diet. And the book goes into rather vivid detail of where we can get other uncoupling signaling molecules without eating an 80% fat diet. And in fact, I go into the book that a lot of the fats in a typical ketogenic diet are actually doing more harm than good. And I profile a, a patient, uh, Miranda, in the book, who's very representative of a lot of patients who come and see me who have done a traditional ketogenic diet and have either not lost any weight, but have actually gained weight. And it's so it should be noted that 60% of people who begin a ketogenic diet can't sustain it for more than a month or so for multiple reasons. So the book goes into all these details that, in fact, uh, we got ketosis and what ketones do uh, wrong. And we're just as the plant paradox was disruptive to healthy eating unlocking the keto code, uh, hopefully, will be just as disruptive to how a ketogen ketogenic diet should be designed and how ketones, in fact, work. Yeah, and what, what you're saying there is definitely pretty, pretty revolutionary in terms of uh, changing our thoughts on, on, you know, how ketosis or ketones are actually helping the human body. Uh, so instead of instead of it kind of being a higher octane fuel source, like we used to think, it sounds like we're more so now realizing that they, they sort of protect the, the mitochondria, which are generating the fuel in our body. Is that, is that kind of a fair take on it? Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I'll, I'll use a, a wonderful example that I use in the book. Uh, again, we've thought that you know ketones were kind of this high high octane fuel that 
your mitochondria would be just incredibly efficient fat burners. Well, think about what efficient means. It means getting the most energy for the least amount of effort. And if we think of gasoline as fat, gasoline has energy. If I want fuel efficiency, uh, I would get a Toyota Prius or something like that, which you know could get me 50 miles on a gallon of gas. Incredibly fuel efficient. On the other hand, if I wanted to waste gas, I would buy a Ferrari. Uh, now, there might be other reasons I'd want a Ferrari, but a Ferrari is an incredibly fuel inefficient, fuel wasting machine. And so the same thing happens. Fat has nine calories per gram. And sorry, nine, uh, yeah, nine calories per gram. And protein and carbohydrates only have four calories per gram. So if I'm eating a mostly fat diet, which has over two times the amount of energy availability than carbs or protein, and I become efficient, then I ought to gain weight eating a ketogenic diet. And that would be contrary to what we'd want to do. So we actually want to do a caloric bypass using our mitochondria. And how that's accomplished is ketones and other compounds signaling mitochondria to literally waste fuel to become a Ferrari instead of a Prius. Now, another really surprising thing what you, uh, you said before is that uh, we don't actually need to be uh, eating eating the high fat like ketones uh, in order to, or you said, you said yeah, in order to correct. achieve. Yeah. So tell me about that. How, how is that able to happen? Well, let's go back to epileptic children since this is a, a neuro podcast. Um, epileptic children on a ketogenic diet um, had some problems. Number one, uh, as anyone with a, a kid knows, it's really hard to deny carbohydrates from children. And having a child consistently eat an 80% fat diet is amazing, maybe not amazing, a, a hard thing to maintain. And these children actually had growth, growth retardation. And after uh, phenobarbital and dilantin came out, the, the high-fat ketogenic diet was, was pretty much abandoned. But in the 1970s, uh, a variation of the ketogenic diet using MCT oil made its appearance. And MCT oil is medium-chain triglycerides. Medium-chain triglycerides are unique in that unlike any other fat that we eat, medium chain triglycerides are directly absorbed through the wall of our gut. They don't need a carrier molecule. And they go directly to the liver where they are converted into ketones automatically. You know, do not pass go, do not collect $200. So they found, again, using epileptic children, that they could give children MCT oil and at a much less dose of fat and give them more carbohydrates and protein and still produce the desired result. Because the ketones were directly, I mean, the MCT oil was directly converted into ketones. And in fact, about a tablespoon of MCT oil, if you swallow it, will actually produce a really nice level of ketosis, regardless of what you're eating. So that's one of the most important tricks, again, coming out of the study of epilepsy in children. Now, you don't just have to 
drink MCT oil or use MCT oil powder, it turns out that there are several milk products that have a high amount of MCT oil in them, and that is goat and sheep products. In fact, most of the names for medium chain triglycerides come from capra, which is the Latin for goat. So there's capric acid, caprylic acid, caproic acid. These are all medium chain triglycerides. And 30% of all the calories in goat milk and sheep milk are MCT oil. So the great thing is you can have goat or sheep yogurt, goat or sheep kefir, goat or sheep cheese. And just by eating those cheeses, as an example, you will produce ketones. Now, let me give you something that we had in the original manuscript, but didn't make it to the book, but I think it's really enlightening. As you know, there are places in the world with extreme longevity that Dan Butner uh, coined the blue zones. And I happen to be the only nutritionist who spent most of my career living in a blue zone, uh, Loma Linda, California. Um, and we're the only blue zone in the United States. There are two other fascinating blue zones. Uh, the mountaintops of Sardinia and the Nagoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And these have both been featured. And Dan would tell you that the reason they have such incredible longevity is they eat a lot of grains and a lot of beans. And they do eat a lot of grains and a lot of beans. But fascinating research shows that these two communities eat a huge amount of goat and sheep cheese. And when you compare the longevity of the people who live up in the mountains in Sardinia, where they're sheep herders and goat herders, with Sardinians who live down by the ocean, it turns out the people who live down by the ocean have no longevity compared to any other, anybody else. It's just the folks who are eating the goat and sheep cheese. Similarly, in the Nagoya Peninsula, it's just these people who are eating goat and sheep cheeses that have the longevity. It's not the beans and grains. And that is pretty remarkable. So why do they have longevity? Because the MCTs are being converted into ketones and the ketones are actually uncoupling mitochondria. Now let's take that one step further. If you look at super old people, folks who live well into their hundreds, and look at the amount their mitochondria are uncoupled, they have dramatically more uncoupled mitochondria than people who don't live that long. And I'll give you one more great example. One of the theories of aging is the um, energy, the, the theory of aging that centers around how fast you use up energy. And if you have a very high metabolic rate, uh, you're not gonna live very long. If you have a low metabolic rate, you're gonna live a long time. And on the surface, that looks pretty good. Little tiny animals who have a very high metabolic rate don't live very long in general. Big animals like an elephant uh, live a long time with a lower metabolic rate. Now, the problem with that theory is that birds are very small. Birds have incredibly high metabolic rate and birds live a really long time. In fact, a hummingbird, which has one of the highest metabolic rates ever discovered in an animal, can live 10 years in captivity. A parrot can live 80 to 100 years in captivity, and yet they have an incredible high metabolic rate. Uh, Toby, I will give you one guess what their mitochondria are like. 
what are there they, might are they the, coupled or uncoupled uncoupled you got it they have some of the highest uncoupled mitochondria that have been discovered and i'll give you an interesting fun fact uh, hummingbirds uncouple uncouple their mitochondria by drinking retinol which is a component of vitamin A that they get from the nectars of the flowers, which are loaded with polyphenols, which uncouple their mitochondria. Fun fact. Very fun fact. And I would assume then that's one of the ways that polyphenols are very beneficial for humans as well. Correct. Um, here's another really uh, nerdy stuff. And I, I know as a neuroscientist, you love nerdy stuff. I do. <laughs> All right. So mitochondria um, have to use oxygen for producing energy. And oxygen in itself is very damaging to mitochondria. They, plants have mitochondria that use protons, uh, photons, sorry, from sunlight to uh, produce ATP. And sunlight, it turns out, is very damaging to plant mitochondria, which are called chloroplasts. Plants protect their chloroplasts from damage by making polyphenols. And polyphenols are those brilliant colors that for instance, we see in leaves in the fall. Uh, polyphenols are what give plants and their fruit colors. And polyphenols are produced to protect the mitochondria in plants from sunlight damage. And they do that by uncoupling the mitochondria. Now, when we eat polyphenols from plants, lo and behold, polyphenols uncouple are mitochondria. So that it turns out when we say eat the rainbow, what we're actually doing is eating uncouplers in the forms of polyphenols. So to get back to unlocking the keto code, it turns out that if you eat a diet rich in polyphenols, you can uncouple your mitochondria as if you were generating ketones. And most ketogenic diets are pretty much devoid of plant polyphenol compounds because you are told to avoid carbohydrates at all costs. So we can get more benefit from what we actually want ketones to do by not eating a traditional high-fat ketogenic diet. So besides the, uh, the goat and sheep products, along with the polyphenols, which you just mentioned, what are some other ways in which we can make our mitochondria better at, at uncoupling? Well, one of the easiest ways, which I wrote about in the energy paradox, is time-restricted eating, uh, controlled eating. And that is, if we limit the time period where we eat food to preferably about six to eight hours in a 24-hour period, it turns out that normally, after about eight hours of not eating, we begin to generate ketones. And by 12 hours of not eating, we're making ketones regardless of anything we ate during that day. And so if we can go 12 hours, we will be generating some nice ketones that uncouple our mitochondria and start to repair them. And evidence uh, out of the NIH with Dr. DeCabo has shown that if we can get that time period of not eating to about 16 hours, 18 hours, that we will get all the benefits of uncoupling from ketones with none of the downsides. And Dr. Cabo showed that 
during the time period that you're eating, it really doesn't matter what you're eating during that time period, you still will generate ketones that will uncouple your mitochondria. And that's actually exciting. And in the book, I teach people, hold their hand, how to get to a point where it's incredibly comfortable to not eat 16 hours out of a 24-hour period. And the good news is sleep you know, counts for eight of those hours. The other ways to do it are really kind of fun. Um, for instance, cold exposure, taking a cold shower like a scotch shower, a polar bear club, jumping in the cold water in the middle of winter actually uncouples mitochondria. Uh, breath holding, uh, using breath techniques like Wim Hof as uh, popularized in Buddhist monks actually uncouple mitochondria so much that you can actually generate heat. Wim Hof can keep himself warm by breath control uncoupling his mitochondria. Buddhist monks can actually melt snow or dry wet towels on their back by breath control uncoupling mitochondria. Another way is saunas. It turns out that the benefit of saunas is not in making you sweat. It's in activating what are called heat shock proteins, which I researched as a heart surgeon. We now know that heat shock proteins uncouple mitochondria. And there's an easy way to do that. You can come and visit me in Palm Springs in the summer, and we'll go out in the 120 degree weather and we'll uncouple our mitochondria together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Gundry, it's uh, funny when I think back to what I was doing about this time last Friday, I went to a class in which we actually were taught the Wim Hof breathing method. And then we did that for about an hour, followed by jumping into an ice bath. So I didn't necessarily connect the dots as to why. Uh, and I don't think the instructor was able to say, you know, why we, uh, why that felt well, so that. great, but I, now I know I was, I was uncoupling the mitochondria. Yeah, that's actually what you were doing. And uh, I, I've, I've had the pleasure of having them off on my podcast, the Dr. Gundry podcast, but uh, Wim, uh, I got to have him back on because I think this is actually going to surprise him on why his method works so well. He knows it works. We all know it works, but uh, I think it would surprise him why it works. Right, right, right. Now, I wanted to circle back to, you know, discussing with, with you, you talked about time-restricted eating. Now, when we increase the length that we're fasting, so if, you know, we take it to a 24-hour or even longer multi-day fast, does that, is there a direct correlation between the longer we fast to the efficiency of the mitochondrial uncoupling process? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, we've known for millennia that, that fasting is, is good for you. Uh, the, the problem with modern day fasting is that uh, sadly, uh, all of us store heavy metals and pesticides, biocides, herbicides in our fat. And believe it or not, as long as they're stored in our fat, they're actually not too dangerous. Uh, those huge tuna, which are loaded to the gills with mercury, uh, are not dying of mercury toxicity because their mercury is, is, is stored in their fat. But when you fast, and begin assessing your fat stores, you dump huge amounts of these organophosphates and heavy metals into your bloodstream. Now we have a problem. We have very poor ability to detoxify heavy metals and these pesticides. Instead, our liver takes these heavy metals and mixes them with bile and drops them 
in back into our gut thinking, okay, there, I've got gotten rid of them. We unfortunately in our gut reabsorb those heavy metals and those pesticides. So I see a number of people who mistakenly think that a multi-day fast is a great way to detox. But in fact, a multi-day fast in America is a great way to increase your toxic exposure. Uh, there's ways around this. Uh, you can take chlorella and activated charcoal, which will absorb these compounds, and then you will uh, pass them out in your stool. And we do that a lot. But the point of all this is you really don't need multi-day fast to get the benefit of mitochondrial uncoupling. In fact, you really don't want an extended fast because uh, at some point, mitochondria will get the message that you are starving and that they should save themselves at all costs. And who cares about anybody else? Who cares about those calorie hungry muscles? And very good research shows that extended fast actually cause the mitochondria to stop manufacturing proteins for muscle formation. And your muscles are instructed to become insulin resistant. And that explains why many people on a ketogenic diet or a prolonged fast actually begin to elevate their glucose levels. And we can actually prove that they become insulin resistant, which uh, if you like the insulin resistance theory of damage uh, is the last thing you wanna do. So I, I'm not a fan in Americans of these uh, multi-day fasts just because of our toxic burden. Sure, sure. Yeah, and that's definitely uh, a good thing for those people who don't wanna push themselves to go without food for, for so long. So um, right. I'm definitely a fan of that finding. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Gundry, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, you know, when, when you kind of look towards the future of, you know, just nutrition, how that is going to continue evolving and the science behind all of this, uh, are there any specific areas of research that we have maybe that we haven't touched on that are super interesting to you going forward? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that probably ought to scare every one of us, and it's, it's what I've, I've written about in, in, in all of my books, um, including this one. Normally, you and I and our mitochondria should have what's called metabolic flexibility. And that means having mitochondria that are able to shift on a dime from using glucose as a fuel to using free fatty acids as a fuel. And it's almost like a hybrid car. Uh, when you're running on gasoline, which we'll call in this case glucose, uh, you charge your battery. And then when you run out of uh, glucose, you'll draw on your battery power, which we will call fat. And you can make that switch instantaneously. Normally, if we're functioning properly, we should be able to make that switch. However, in research that I talk about in the book, 50% of normal weight Americans are metabolically inflexible. 50%, half of normal weight. If you look at overweight Americans, 94%, 94% of overweight Americans are metabolically inflexible. If you look at obese Americans, and we're rapidly approaching 50% obesity in the United States, 98.5% of those people are metabolically inflexible. In other words, they can't shift from burning glucose to burning free fatty acids. 
Now, why is that so important? Because when we stop eating and go to sleep, we should normally be switching over to burning free fatty acids and ketones for at least a few hours. And that keeps our brain alive, among other things, and keeps our cells alive. But if we can't make that shift, even for a few hours, your brain cells, and this is a neuro podcast, literally starve to death. And if anybody's paying attention, Alzheimer's and dementia is out of control. Anyone who pays attention knows there is no treatment for Alzheimer's, none. The only treatment for Alzheimer's is prevention. And if the vast majority of Americans are metabolically inflexible, uh, as Mr. T would say, I pity the fool. <laughs> well said, yeah. That, that is a huge connection there that, that, that certainly deserves to be spoken on. Well, Dr. Gundry, I wanted to really thank you for coming on the show, sharing all of your knowledge and expertise with our audience today. And I wanted to ask you if people want to find out more about your work or uh, find your books or supplements, any, any resources that you would direct them to. Yeah, so they can, so the books, uh, the new book will be out uh, March 8th. You can get them wherever books are sold. You can go online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target.com. Uh, you can find me at drgundry.com. You can find me on the Dr. Gundry podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And you can uh, find me on YouTube. You can find me on Instagram. Um, it, hopefully I arrive in everybody's inbox every morning, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, that's where to find me. Perfect. Well, yeah, Dr. Gundry, I'm really look, looking forward to, to reading the Keto Code uh, book in a couple months when it comes out. And for the audience who enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. And you can also find the audio versions of this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other major audio streaming platforms. So Dr. Gundry, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing, sharing all your expertise. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, Toby, and hope to talk to you again in the future. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's, that's where I'll wrap it up um, time-wise. I, so I've, I've started to ask people, I'm not sure if we did this last time, but I've started to ask guests kind of after the show um, the question of why the listeners should tune into the show. And then I sort of use that, uh, your response is sort of the intro slash kind of trailer, you know, sneak preview of the episode. Okay. So it can sort of be, you know, just kind of based on, on what we talked about and, you know, um, right. why, why people should, should have, uh, should tune in. Sure. Uh, tell me when you're ready and I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever you're ready.